This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Bonus episode of Electric Bookaloo. As promised, linguist David Peterson, one of the very few people in the world who has seen House of the Dragon scripts, will talk a little bit about his impression of those scripts and his process in language creation and translation. And then comic Steve Osborne and I talk about the Book of the Stranger midpoint through season six. I mean, did television ever get better than this? It's just peak Game of Thrones. By the way, if you like the Stephen Anthony stuff, this week we are reviewing The Batman over at Cocoons of Horror, and you can search for that wherever you search for podcasts. Hey, I ought to mention David's book, The Art of Language Invention, is available on Amazon. That is called The Art of Language Invention. Do yourself a favor, go drop 15 bucks. I guarantee you'll learn something new. Okay, without further ado, here is Dr. David J. Peterson. A beautiful, beautiful voice from a beautiful man. <laughs> um, how are you doing? How are you I'm doing? I'm all right. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm okay. I'm all right. Excellent. Do you enjoy having several projects to bounce to and fro, or in your ideal world, would you like to be focused on one project? Uh, for for conlang work like this, I do actually prefer several different projects because, um, you know, like if you, the way it often works is you're working on a single language and then it's like you're, you're working on it, you get to a point where you need to do something and you feel a little bit uh, stuck or out of ideas. It's nice to be able to jump to a different one, especially a language that is uh, markedly different typologically to kind oh, of jar you out of it, get you to doing something else you know right right and it helps you to feel fresher when you get back to the other one so yeah i uh ideally i would love at least two going at a time so give me an example like what are you working on right now that you can talk about <laughs> what are you working on right now and tell me the differences between the two projects uh working on several different things so uh, doing uh uh, two different languages for Shadow and Bone, which is which is nice because then you have that in one project. Okay, it's kind of like when I was working on Defiance. Um, I created two different languages at one time while I was doing that, and so I would jump back and forth between those. But then, uh, you know, the the other projects I'm working on are so there's two new languages for Shadow and Bone, but like otherwise, I'm working on stuff that I've already created, like you know, High Valyrian for the uh, House of the Dragon. Sure. Um, and then actually a, a new language for a new show that's going to be on the Peacock that I'm pretty excited about. Um, yeah, like one of the Shadow and Bone languages and the language in that show, the Peacock show, are basically mirror opposites. And that's kind of what I like. Uh, I see. I yeah. see. Really um, allows you to kind of like get into one kind of a groove. And then when you're burnt out on it, jump into something else. So last we talked, you were not at liberty to talk about House of the Dragon at all. And uh, I mean, I, I I sort of guessed that, of course, that they would bring you back mm -hmm. because a lot of Targaryens in that show. So clearly you've developed High Valyrian uh, already. But I guess the question is, did you have to make it a more robust language moving forward in this project? Uh, I mean, uh, yeah, but only in, you know, the same sense as I would as if there were a new season of Game of Thrones. There was a lot more uh, dialogue than I was expecting, which I was very pleased by, um, mm -hmm. and a lot of very well-written dialogue, uh, which I was also pleased by, um, really challenged me as a translator. Um, but I mean, really what it is, it's just expanding the vocabulary, which is kind of 
uh, usual for a new season. Um, right. Um, the the nice thing is that I'd been working with High Valerian a lot, you know, due to the Duolingo course, and also just um, you know season three on, and Game of Thrones. Most of the work I was doing was in High Valerian. Um, sure. So you know, I felt pretty good about it. Um, so mostly vocabulary. It's not like you encountered something new about the language that made you rethink some of the grammatical rules or had to create a new paradigm for something like that. Oh, yeah. I mean, but um, the way that works is um, I think uh, just the, the existence of this book is really is really illuminating. There's a book that, by Beth Levine, a linguist on English called, I think it's uh, English Verb Classes. Um, and what she does is she identifies, I believe it's 144 unique verb classes of English. Um, and then what does that mean? Uh, to give you an example of two words that have a very similar meaning. Uh, you have the word eat in English, right? And so you could say, I ate an apple. You could also say, I ate. It means like I ate a meal, right? Sure. Then, yeah. you, have, then you have a word devour. And you could say, I devoured an apple. But you couldn't say, I devoured. It just doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> and it sounds weird. And sure. so... Right, and so these two words belong to two different verb classes based on their syntactic behavior. Right. E eat can appear with or without an object. Devour must have an object. She has identified 144 separate classes in English that differ in slight little ways like that. Right, yeah, sure. Like one of the most interesting words we have is bet in English because uh, you could say, you know, I bet you, you could say, I bet you a hundred dollars. You could say, I bet a hundred dollars. Uh -huh. um, and then there's a, that that can follow it. There are all these weird entailments. So um, that type of thing happens in every single language. And it's usually not something that is spelled out by, you know, the grammar. It's something that you have to learn when you learn the verb. Sure. Um, and so when you know working with a language that already exists like like high valyrian but that doesn't have you know a huge amount of words um every so often you will come across situations like that basically you will come across new verb frames when you create a new verb or need a new verb and realize mm -hmm. that it's going to work in a way that no other verb in your language has yet worked sure yeah yeah and it gives you an opportunity to like say okay well this verb works like this are there others that could work like this uh and you know how exactly am i going to spell that out how is it going to handle all this stuff um so that's really the area of grammar that expanded the most uh with high valerian which is uh what one would expect at this stage um yeah. you know, every so often there might be a new derivation here or there there might have been a new derivation so, for yeah high valerian, that leads but... me to a different question mm -hmm. so i'm preaching to the choir here but of course you know that grammatical rules are often broken. Mm -hmm. If you look at a language like English, for instance, you could almost say that the rules are just as likely to be broken as to follow the structure that you would expect, right? So I'm wondering, as someone who creates languages, how do you know when to break your own rules? Um, if your rules are based on behavior and not on prescription, you should be more or less fine. Uh, like, for example, there are plenty of rules of English that are never broken, but that we don't really think of as rules. So it's like, you could say, you know, I'm going to the store versus, you know, going to the store. Um, we don't really think of English as a language that drops subjects, but you can do it. Yeah. Um, but something that never happens is be is to, you could never say, you know, the I'm going to store to sure. like emphasize the thedness of store you know you drag it out in front um it's sure. just it it's not only uh, a rule that you know it's like you shouldn't break it's a rule that could never ever ever be broken by any english speaker because it defies the very logic of english in a in such a crucial way that you know if somebody were to do it you would think that they perhaps they were a robot um not a human being, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that's really the type of thing that you're looking at. So, and I don't even really know how best to describe this, but it's, it's getting a sense of both what your language is usually like, but also the type of things that humans do. 
So for example, mm -hmm. um, uh, Valerian doesn't have words like the or uh, doesn't have any articles. Sure. Uh, it does have cases. And so these uh, cases will be assigned to different nouns based on the verb in the sentence. So like um, there's a uh, there's a verb, idragon, uh, which means to speak to somebody. And so it can take a direct object that you put into the accusative the same way you put like the apple in the accusative if you were eating it. Um, this is uh, unusual for English speakers because they expect the two part to come with the other thing. So there's a, uh, there's a very common error that English speakers will make in High Valyrian on Duolingo when they're using this verb. So it's like, you know, uh, I'm talking to you would be, you know, uh, avi idratan, where avi is the accusative form of you. You will often see English speakers saying aut idran, sorry. Uh, because aot is the dative and they understand the dative as being to you. Yeah. That is an error that a high Valyrian speaker would never make because that error is based on English, right? It's based on your understanding of English. Um, it, it doesn't make sense because they would always know that that's just a regular verb that means to talk to without the sense that there's some sort of preposition in there. It's just, that's not the verb, yeah. it's idragon. And so why would you ever put that object in the dative? You know? Yeah, you know, for, for Greek, when I see the dative, I often will have these little tricks of prepositions that I bring in to. <laughs> so it's sort of an English crutch for someone who's not a native Greek speaker. But you're saying that that, that actually will misconstrue the meaning in High Valerian. It just will look really bizarre. It'd be like you're speaking for somebody or something like that. Like, I don't even know if the data plays any role with that verb. Um, and it's just not something that would happen commonly. You know, it's just not something that they would think, it's not an error they would think to make, like, or unconsciously. On the other hand, there are a number of prepositions uh, in Valerian uh, and postpositions. Many of them take the genitive. Um, a couple take the locative. It, I can imagine an error where somebody flubs up and uses the genitive instead of the locative because it's much more common, hmm. right? And it's also not as load-bearing as it were because you have the, the ad position there. That's the thing that's giving you most of the meaning. The, yeah. uh, the case that's assigned to it is just agreement, really. Um, and so since the genitive is much more common, I could see them mixing it up. That's a, sure, a believable sure. type of error that even a native speaker would make if they were just being, you know, lazy or casual, you know? All right. Yeah, no, I'm glad that you said that because I was going to ask this and this maybe leads into it. So oftentimes with historical voices, we will notice that a certain kind of voice or a certain person, a certain personality prefers a particular, for, you know, formula. And sometimes the formula is sort of an informality. Uh, sometimes it's actually a grammatical error, but they, they repeat it over and over again because it sounds good to their ear or something like that. Mm. Or it was an error that their father made because they were <laughs> from this particular region or something like that. So when you're writing for different characters, do you create idiosyncratic grammatical errors for the different characters in the show? That's the most difficult part. I certainly have done it, but usually it's for non-native speakers that are speaking oh, the nice. language. Like when Tyrion is sort of trying to fumble his way through uh, High Valyrian, right? Yeah, Tyrion, but also Daenerys. Um, not with High Valyrian, with Dothraki. Sure, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's actually something that's very difficult to capture, especially with a language that uh, doesn't have as much vocabulary as you're used to having, say, in English, which we have right. tons. And so we can use um, vocabulary choice uh, to demonstrate, to basically to characterize, you know. Um, but that, that is something that I was dealing with in House of the Dragon, because there's uh, one character who just, you know, as he's speaking English and as they're giving these lines in English, he just, he speaks in a very different way from you know, the other people he's talking to. Um, not necessarily less 
formal, but perhaps more flippant. Sure. <laughs> and I, I really wanted to be able to capture that in the Valerian. I think I know the character you're talking about. So don't, I won't name him, uh, but I think I know the character you're talking about. Yeah. And so like that was that was kind of a difficult thing. That was a really it was one of the challenges that I faced this season. It's like, well, how how can I kind of convey that sense in Valerian? I know yeah. how to do it in English, but how do I do it in Valerian? That was so that was a challenge. Um and I, I expect it will be an ongoing one. Um, sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'll keep at it. Do you feel like you've done do you feel like there's more high Valerian in this first season than you saw in any of the 10 seasons of Game of Thrones? Um, I think so. Because like in seasons uh, three, four, and five, a lot of it was not actually High Valyrian. A lot of it was Astapori. Um, and then, I mean, starting around season six, uh, the the amount of material I was able to do really dropped off steeply. Mm. Um, so yeah, this is... Um, this is probably the most high Valyrian I've done in a season. Uh, I would say I was really uh, pleasantly surprised by that. So, so yeah, I think this is the, it's not the most work I've done on a season, but it's the most high Valyrian um, okay. that I've done. Yeah. And I don't know this, I don't know if you're able to reveal us or not, but were there any other languages that they had you work on? Uh, no, not this time. Okay. I would love to see, um, I would love to see a show for the Game of Thrones, for the Song of Ice and Fire universe. I would love to see them do what they're doing now with Star Trek, uh, which is opening it up, giving it to other people and allowing them to take different spots of the world or different times and do things. Because mm -hmm. I think there's a very interesting show that sees somebody traveling in and around um, the free cities. Uh doing things and and i would love to be able to do those languages uh, i mean of the mm. you know so-called bastard valyrian languages i would say that uh the ones spoken in like uh, slavers bay were the ones that readers were the least interested in um but they were the only ones i got a chance to do um i would love a chance to do mm -hmm. you know bravosi tairoshi and toshi and so on well, it's interesting that you say that because one of my favorite chapters that I wrote was I, you know, there's not there wasn't enough about the religions, sort of the obscure religions, right. of Essos to do a full chapter on. So basically, what we did was we decided we'll devote a chapter to whatever we know of these particular minor religions. And it was really interesting. I, I I love doing the research for that. Wherever George leads you, there's going to be a culture, right? Yeah. Which means that there's going to be religion. There's going to be language, right? Yeah. And it's like there, there's a lot of potential there. Um, and I think it's uh, enough potential that you can't just like uh, saddle it on George, for example. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's got to finish the original set of books anyway. Um and so uh, I think it would be cool. I think that the that the world is big enough. And I would love to see like five different series set in this universe, which is exactly what they're doing with Star Trek right now. I think Paramount is brilliant for that. Well, and I hate as... them for not having me. You know. <laughs> as long as people keep making money on it. I think that there's a lot riding on the success of House of the Dragon. I think so because too. If it is a success, and I think that success would be like even if you can have the numbers of you know Game of Thrones, yeah, you know at its height, I think that would be a success. If it is a success, I think that you might see something like what you're talking about. I think that there's a lot of other shows that George is sort of happy to give over, um, but even though these things have you know, sort of, they have permissions on these things. They have not been greenlit. And I think, I think that folks are waiting to see if this is a continued moneymaker. I think so too. I think like both uh, HBO and the fans are waiting to see. And so mm. um, it's very difficult. I've, I've realized this over the years now, it's very difficult to read a script and tell what it's going to be like when you see it on screen mm. and to tell if it's going to be good or not. Um, it's very, very difficult. I've had experiences where I read things and 
I thought they were really great. And then they played out a little prosaically on screen. And then I've had complete opposite reactions where it's like, okay, so this is what happens. Mm -hmm. And I see it like, wow, that was really cool. It's yeah. just super hard to tell. Uh, but what I know about what I know about this uh, series is that the the parts that I'm involved with, like the writing that I'm reading, is better than anything that I've worked on. Um, wow. I think outside of like Penny Dreadful, uh, which for me is the favorite, my favorite show that I've worked on, um, even though I hated working on it. It's funny how that happens sometimes. Um, wait, wait, wait. It was your favorite thing to work on, but you hated working on it? No, it was my favorite show that I have worked on, oh, like to I watch see. as a viewer. I and I think it was brilliant, but I hated working on it. I see. I see. You know, that is not the worst news for Game of Thrones fans to hear. That yeah. someone who's worked on the show is uh, so far, you know, there's, there's a pot, you've had a positive experience so far with the dialogue. Yeah. No, I think it's, just reading it, it was really, really good. Mm. Um, and it was one of the things that made it feel like a little bit of an extra challenge. Cause it's like, hmm. it's, it's like, Jesus, they're, you know, they're not phoning this in. I really, <laughs> I really want to bring That's my A game to, to this. That's absolutely great to hear. Also, yeah, by the way, just really quick. It was also mm -hmm. like a real pleasure working on this. Cause like I've worked on a ton of different shows and movies now, and I have had a very, drastic swing in experiences from show to show hmm. and it was really nice working on this show so that was nice as well uh all good news all welcome news thank you so much david right on Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. In two days, only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Ruben. Taylor Swift: The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming March 14th only on Disney Plus. And now Steve and I cover episode four of season six, Book of the Stranger. John leaves the Night's Watch. We say goodbye to Asha. Marjorie continues to contend with the High Sparrow. And Littlefinger is just at the peak of his powers. Here's comic Steve Osborne. Okay, Steve. Jeff. What could Tormund be doing differently? <laughs> With Brienne, because so far, so far, his moves, he's got one move and it's not working for him. So what, <laughs> what sort of advice, let's say I'm Tormund and I'm coming to you for advice. Like, I really like this girl, but so far leering at her while I take a big chomp out of mutton isn't really working for me. <laughs> Honestly, like that, I, I, I would I'd be like, I guess just take another bite. Um, because I don't know how it's not. I mean, you could try looking away. Offer her the mutton. <laughs> that would be an option. Yeah, I mean, I, I really you could feel talk like, to her. I mean, that's well, one thing. Sure, that's one thing. But, but I think like he's trying to play into this whole sort of you know forbidden fruit angle, right? You know, hey, look, you're wearing some Lannister gear. I'm a wildling. Wouldn't this be naughty? Yeah, so it's just not working for Brienne. I think he's got to try a different tact. Well, that's what we assume, right? Yeah, so far. So far, she hasn't given any indication that she enjoys the leering, right? <laughs> right. But, I mean, she doesn't really give a lot of indication that she's ever enjoyed anything. So what do we know? I think she really gets a kick out of kneeling and putting her sword down at someone's feet and repeating an oath. She he she could do that for him. <laughs> she, she's already done for Sansa. I I think that she could just do that all day. She'd be the happiest woman alive. <laughs> and the trouble is, Tormund doesn't like to kneel for anybody. So I don't yeah, know. I don't true. know if these two are going to get along. 
One one is like the biggest kneeler in the history of kneelers. <laughs> One's just not about it. I don't know. Well, you know, we're all rooting for him. We're rooting for these crazy kids. I mean, I think that she might really enjoy like killing him. Yeah. Because, I mean, you know, she she fought Jamie and kind of fell in love with Jamie, I think. Or at least something close to that. I think she fell in love with uh the the knight like she's she was with a knight and the knight uh, one of the like regardless of what you think of jamie lannister i think an, any knight that considers themselves to be uh you know devoted to the craft probably sees jamie mm-hmm. for at the top of it right mm-hmm. you know so there's probably a little little bit of a starstruck component to it it's kind of when uh, comics date other comics yeah right do you think yeah. that that's a good idea, by the way? I mean, we no, never talked I, about this. Do, do you think it's I, a good idea for comics to date other comics? I've never seen it work out uh-huh. that I can think of. I mean, I, it just doesn't. It, a, the issue is, I mean, you have to be a pretty secure person, I think, to because comedy, the, the comedy community is a bit of a, of a contradiction in terms because it's a community. We're all kind of in it together. We all kind of understand. Mm-hmm what we're each going through uniquely. Right. So even if we already have a significant other, you know, they can kind of understand through us, but it's not the same, like the, all the different levels of like, you know, nerves, emotions, uh, all that stuff that goes along with it. But the other part of this is that we're all, we're all vying for the same stage time to some degree. And nothing, is, nothing puts that in better perspective than a comedy competition. Cause you, you go from like, no, I really believe I want this person to do well in any other given night. It's not going like, man, I really hope they bomb. And I mean, I guess that's sort of the case with competition, but in, it's different, right? Than being like, I want to be better than. I also want them to do poorly. Um, well, is there also truth to the notion that in general, comics are either deeply wounded or they're neurotic or they've got some sort of mental condition that sort of fuels their comedy, but in reality, they're. They're not, they're not the healthiest people in the world. Right, because you usually have a tug-of-war between uh, narcissism and self-loathing, which, sure. you know, it's like, it's like I, I hate myself enough to be funny, but I also think highly enough of myself that people should hear about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can see that. So then you then you add two of those people together in a romantic relationship. Mm-hmm. Chances are, see, I feel like being not being in that world. I feel like it'd be better if those types of people would pair off, so we can keep them <laughs> out of the general population. Sure. No, I, and it, well, that that is that's probably the best of all possible scenarios. There's also the the allure and the appeal of the funny person that will bring other people to them. But it, so I, it's it's hard, I think, to see people who are dating in the comic comedy community and not feeling threatened by or jealous of. And that's a real hard thing, I think, to reconcile. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would be hard for a normal person and that much harder for for comics. Um, Cause then there's the, what happens when, and I've seen it, you know, you've seen couples, they couple when they're kind of in the same sort of phase in their comedy career. And then one takes off and the other one does not. And then there's the, ah, this person only gets booked because of their significant other. And then it just creates more and more complications. Um, sure. So in this case with Brienne and, and, uh, Tormund, um, I don't know. Are they, I mean, I guess they're all, they're probably, they would be competing to kill the most people perhaps. Well, here's the, here's the issue. I think a lot of fans were going hard at the Jamie and Brienne Mm. possibility. And then Tormund comes along and he, you know, he needs a, he needs a couple trips to HR first off. Sure. And then, and then they kind of felt like, no, 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 no. I want to see Jamie and Brienne together. I don't want Tormund. Uh, Come on. There's no way Jamie and Brienne would ever get together. Well, and that's always been my, my, my pushback was always sort of like, I think Tormund knows who he is. And I don't think Jamie quite knows who he is. No, at best, Jamie knows he's a guy that will always love his sister. 
That's the, and that's, that's the one thing he knows about. Himself. It seems to be the one thing he's the most confident about. So I don't think. I don't and think that's, that, that's going to be a hard hurdle to get over in in uh, couples counseling. Yeah, I think so. So, so I think I. So anybody, I was always kind of pro Tormund Brienne, but I just don't think he's going at it in the he right. He may be way. going at it the right way, but we don't really know what exactly tickles uh, Brienne's fancy. Um, well, let's all right. Let's just let, let's just be real about this. If Tormund is to be believed. He hasn't had sex with his sister, but he has had sex with a she bear. Yeah, and, and and Brienne has not had good luck with bears. No, um, which would seem like uh, at least a a coupling of convenience. You know, I mean, he may be like, "Look, I can protect you against a bear, <laughs> real good." <laughs> I can't promise the bear won't want to come back. Yeah, look, I can promise it won't come back for you. The, the bear, <laughs> he may he may distract the bear with all of his lovemaking. Yes, but then that just means she's protected from the bear. But then now she's got to be jealous of the bear. Uh, I think I feel like there'd be an understanding. Like, okay. say, look, I like I like the bears. <laughs> like I like the bears. I like you. Like I like you. <laughs> And again, if it was one of those things like, look, I know you don't love this particular part of me, but I'm, I'm keeping I'm keeping you safe from the bears. Uh, oh, man. All right. I want to talk before we do anything else. Is that all? I think that's all that happened in this episode. I feel pretty happy just with what we've covered. <laughs> I do want to talk about the way this one ended. This one ended with a pretty quick. All right. So Danny gets captured and you were worried uh, that she was going to spend the entire season walking through the desert. Yeah. My concern was we would see the same thing again. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And Boy, this... I sure got something new this time. <laughs> so, so Ooh, I, I felt like, this happened all this all happened kind of quick like which is i will ex, i will trade um she rolls into town i'll trade lack of originality for uh, uh efficiency yeah this is pretty efficient she rolls into town as a slave she burns all the men alive and and winds up with a massive dothraki horde but she loses her clothing Mm-hmm. So no, it's, it's a good trade, burns. I think. Good trade. Burns, yeah. Good trade for Dario and uh, well, probably more Jorah at this point because Dario's like been there. And uh, yeah, Jor. Yes, talk about leering. That's why. Yeah, Jorah has to avert his eyes. Yeah, Jorah does like a little, like a little, a slow kneel. Now he's he's seen this show before, though, right? Yeah. In, but end of I season mean, one, he got to getting, see the. He's pie. not getting another one of these shows with by the power of grayscale. When Danny wants to take over, she takes over. I mean, oh, yeah. she could really take the wheel when she wants to. Yeah, which is great. I mean, I think that that's kind of cool. I think I actually do like that we're getting into this, you know, like, because I think because Danny has felt uh, a little less spectacular as of late, you know, and I think that's by design just because of the, um, she kind of had that brow. Remember when Elena called uh, Tyrion a brow-beaten accountant or something like yeah. that? Yeah. She's last season was kind of that for her. You know, she was kind of like, yeah. She she had to be her own hand of the queen for for the most mm-hmm. part, and she wasn't loving it. And I don't think we were loving them either. No, and so there was, but that's and that's fine, right? And I think that that's that's okay. That's how. Uh, how it goes when you're when you're leading. Uh, so I think that while we, we recognize it was a necessary thing, it's also easy to kind of forget that like, yeah, remember how she got in this position in the first place. It's kind of like, all right, well, you've got this character that you want to keep interesting and she's got this superpower and she, there's just no context to you. She's kind of like Aquaman in that way. Right. She's like the fantastic superpower, not a whole lot of opportunity. So this gives her the opportunity to like burn a place down. I, I almost she almost is a little bit happy about that she gets to use it. Yeah. Well, like yeah. You, she's like, you guys brought me into 
a thatched well, roof they, house. They, yeah, you guys, come on, me of all people. Well, but there's also this. Um, she's been getting disrespected as of late. Yeah, her her authority has been challenged a lot as this leader and uh you know she's had to put her dragons away and now she's trying like so now she's leading without a superpower and there's no you've got you've got uprisings and now you need to have a council and there's like you didn't need that when you could walk through fire and dragons would perch on your shoulder people are just gonna defer to you even if you're making the wrong decisions so now she's like look i got i went back to where this all came from I thought if there were, you know, maybe there's some element of if there was any place where I could go back and wield that power again, it would be through legend in the with the Dothraki. Mm -hmm. And they were giving her none of it. In fact, they didn't. It was up in the air whether she'd even be able to stay. Yeah, I love that they called back like, you know, I was in this room when there was a big old prophecy about me conquering the world. And uh, one of the ladies is like, yeah, I was here, too. Yeah, Guess exactly. that didn't work out for you. <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's all kind of that. That to me is pretty is pretty interesting. So I, I could. So the motivating factor of being able to just go, you know what, I'm going to I'm a strut. I'm, a, I'm you know, because it, it serves a couple of purposes. It serves the purpose of, you know, gets her out of the situation. But now it's, it's like, look, guys, I need to get everybody here on the same page. I'm I'm a big deal. And now I don't know what this is going to yield but it does certainly seem like well for a place for, for somebody who's kind of losing some of the control that she had and mm -hmm. some of the places she's conquered and she doesn't even know she doesn't have ships right i mean uh having having this kind of at your disposal it's it seems like that would be helpful it's a moment she needed a win she got a win um and uh, i mean I, and there's a part that's like i can't wait to see what this brings together when you get you know Tyrion and her back together again, and 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 then to see what how that dynamic works when she's like, oh yeah, she's she torched the torched the Dothraki leaders. And yeah, the other thing about it is that this is all her. It's like it's mm -hmm. her plan. She executes, and it just works out swimmingly. Um, someone who has zero plan, Steve, is Robin Aron. He's just not interested yeah. in anything that's happening. Uh, he's got other things on his mind. <laughs> he's so he's so rarely aware of what's happening. And I love that. Uh, so Littlefinger shows up, and he's he's playing chess. <laughs> he just, Everyone else yeah. is playing checkers, and he he gets the kid a bird. <laughs> yeah, he can do whatever he wants. I got you a bird. <laughs> he can do a bird. Whatever he wants. And Robin, I got a bird. <laughs> I love that that uh so Jan Royce is the guy who's trying to teach them to shoot arrows and whatnot. <laughs> yeah. And this guy, this guy's life is hanging in the balance. And Robin just like, eh, I guess he can live. And if there's a moon door, he gets all excited. It's been a minute since he's seen a, another moon door episode. And and then he's like, Oh, or should we let him live? And he's just like, mm, bird. All right, so I felt a little bit bad for John because he just wanted out. The dude, the dude was about to take a vacation. He's like, "Look, man, I died. What more I, do you I, want? What I, more I, do you want from me?" I feel like I feel like that should be that should be a good reason to retire. So he just wants out, and then she shows up. He's and like, it's like, "I told everybody my watch ended. Exactly. I, I, I did a whole thing." <laughs> I, I I made a scene. <laughs> now you want me to undo the scene? I can't unhang Ollie. <laughs> <laughs> so I do feel a little ba bad for him. I feel like, dude, just give the guy a break. And that was kind of an, and that wasn't like this is like the first time we were seeing him break from that Ned comparison we talked about. Mm -hmm. You know, we get the idea that that Ned wasn't, you know, granted he didn't come back to life after being killed, but you get the sense that Ned is like, he's, he's, he's going to do his job until the job kills him. Right. 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 And he was like, and, he, but that was kind of his point from four, like, and then to what end? Right. And that's where you use the term failure. It's like, yeah, well, if it was so great, why'd I die? Um, so yeah. And then, so Sansa's like, well, I'll do all this without you. And he's 
prick. And then the letter comes. Uh, the letter. The letter that... <laughs> The letter that, you know, I'm sure that the the, the director's cut is them going, did you say Bran or Rickon? <laughs> Rickon. Uh, oh, okay. I think, Man, I you know we, what? Low key, I don't think that Ramsey gets enough credit for his letter writing. <laughs> like, he writes great letters. <laughs> well, I mean, he certainly uh, conveys a thesis. And sometimes he'll include a little body part with the letter. Right. See here. Did we do anything with brand this episode or no brand this episode? Uh, Are we brand free? I feel like we're getting so brand heavy. I think we got zero brand this episode, which is fine. Right. We got OSHA. OSHA dead. Oh, OSHA's dead. Yeah, she was. She was. Um. She was kind of an important character for a while there. And then she was completely out of the picture. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I kind of forgot about both her and Ricky Walnuts. Yeah. And, but then she came back and I thought, oh, this is interesting. I mean, uh, again, beyond beyond any book narrative mm-hmm. um, here. So I thought it'll be interesting to, interesting to see how she negotiates Ramsey because Ramsey is Ramsey traffics and fear, right? Right. Like that's his, his superpower is that he will actually make you afraid just to be in the room with him. And Asha's like fearless, right? So right. she like is incapable of feeling fear, I suppose, unless you're like a white Walker. Um, so I thought, Oh, this is an interesting pairing. And then of course, She's done so. Yeah, I figured that was going to be the case. She seemed like because it, uh, it's a lot. I think I don't know. Even just in terms of uh, how much to deal with, um, it seemed like it would be a lot to have to navigate her return. Like I could see them where Ricky just becomes sort of a plot device at this point. And and well, as long as you have, I'm surprised. Asha, I was actually quite surprised that they killed her off. Um, so quickly because there are so many care. I don't know. I feel like they're killing off too many characters. Well, we we've invested in her a lot. She, we feel, um, I think we feel beholden to her because of what she's done to keep Bran and Ricky alive. Um, so as from an audience perspective, I could see the need to do her better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know. Like once once you get her there, it's like I'm not sure what Ramsey's plan is. If he's going to torture, was going to torture them both? Was he? I mean, he's not going to not torture them, right? I mean, I think that's it. Wouldn't make any sense. It's his favorite thing, Steve. It, it is. It, so it wouldn't make any sense that there's not going to be some level of torture because well, one is just a commodity, and the other one was like an extra piece of baggage so well, I and also i think there was part of him that was kind of like oh, i'm gonna have to i'm not scared of my dad but he's gonna like i'm gonna have to have this stupid conversation with my dad who doesn't understand how much i love torturing people <laughs> and he's gonna give me like you know he's gonna just make me feel guilty about torturing people and now he doesn't have any of that right so yeah i'm curious to see where where this is all all headed and it's funny because like uh, you, that's one thing I think the showrunners do a really good job of, and especially considering, like we talked about last time, about how the show began. They'll get you so involved that you forget that there's White Walkers. Ramsey's letter is like, yeah, all right. Oh gosh, let's let's this go is get the worst thing that could worst thing that could possibly happen in the north. Yeah, you know, and like we had that one episode a ways back where it's like we see the the king and he gets the baby and he and he pushes the baby in the ice machine or whatever and uh, <laughs> and uh, and then it's like then you just don't hear from him for a while. <laughs> you know, it's just it's really. It's it either it shows how well they do to keep you kind of sleight of handed distracted, which might be like the overarching theme of like sure 
yeah. you know, there's, there's bigger dangers in this world, but we get caught up in our own, um, you know, power struggles and trivialities as, as humans, or it just, they haven't done enough with the white walkers to make them that interesting. I don't know. Well, they but certainly, I, I, I mean, so far, so far, it's sort of this impending dread, but that's legend, about it. Right? Yeah. And, uh, and I think that for people who are really in, invested in that narrative, Bran is sort of the vehicle to keep you interested in what's going on north of the wall. And I think that we're supposed to kind of get the sense that this three-eyed raven guy is the r- chief rival to the the Night King or something like that. Or, you know, there's going to be a war and those two are sort of going to... Collision course. Of some yeah, sort on or... some sort of magical collision course. Okay. Um, but like I said, if you're not invested in Brand's narrative, which I'm totally invested in Brand's narrative... Uh, I love all the timey wimey stuff. So, yeah, I'm in, I'm totally would. in. I love it. I love it. See, I just but then I'm just like, well, okay, go. Maybe this goes back to my rules thing, right? If I could get time travel on a tall ship, <laughs> you made a time machine out of a tall ship. <laughs> um, the uh, yeah, and I guess, and I think that's where maybe I'm getting the most uh uncomfortable with the timey-wimey stuff is that i've been forgiving of a lot of things because uh, of magic because rules have been in place and historically the rules of time travel are kind of or they're not usually spelled out very well and in fact they become problematic so you know just saying i oh, can only make so many smoke babies or oh yeah the dragons are hard to train or this or that mm-hmm. um i'm not sure how you you reconcile those little cheat codes. Well, to get I will say this time. so far they've, they've paid off those elements pretty well, mm-hmm. I think. So I don't think if they haven't earned your trust by now, well, my, what I don't want, and this is just me not wanting is I don't want it to be like, okay, we've already resurrected John, right? Like that was already a big cheat code. Um, but you know, they set sort of, they set, they've set up, precedent for that look the white walkers themselves are, are resurrected the there's you know the, the dude in the cave and all that stuff um and then again in the book that you know catlin but you know i just want to be like oh well we don't like how this turned out uh, hey send brand to a tree i don't want him to be able to just go and and, and uh, redo things i mean maybe that's that's what i don't want yeah so far what we've been told is the ink is dry suggesting that he really doesn't have a whole lot of impact on the past. Right. And that's, and that, I, that's okay. I mean, clearly, I mean, I'm of the mind. Well, I don't know. I mean, he did a, he did the, the whisper and the whisper was well-timed yeah, yeah. and it could be the wind. That's fine. Um, but with, since we're dealing with time is a temptation, I think time travel is such a temptation for uh, any kind of uh, whether you know it's fantasy <clears> or action and so i just i just don't i i'm just cautiously optimistic mm-hmm. as i've been with everything else um well let me take let me give you a, a, a tiny bit of um sort of behind the scenes stuff here so these weirwood trees the trees with the faces mm-hmm. so these have been worshiped for thousands of years because they, you know, supposedly there's spirits in the trees that they're called the old gods. Once I found out that Bran could kind of sort of touch a tree and like see his father praying under a tree in the past, part of me thinks, oh, that's this is kind of a an origin story for the old gods. These people aren't actually experienced deities. They're experiencing some kind of brand figure who's got this power to like communicate through these trees. Mm, okay. Um, and so like way back, way, way, way back in the day, like the Southerners decided to cut down all of the weirwood trees in the South of Westeros because they realized that the, these trees were essentially a big spy network. Mm, um, and then, but of course, north of the wall, there's a lot more uh, weirwood trees. So, I think it's interesting in the in the book. What what it's suggesting is that Bran is able to kind of warg into this tree and 
essentially become one of the old gods. At least that's kind of how I'm reading it. Mm. And I don't know. I don't know if that kind of laying that kind of track helps. It's it certainly hasn't been laid in the show. And I think that might be my issue, right? Is that I do feel like it because there's the brand and, you know, I, I've been on record like, yeah, you know, I could do without a lot of the brand stuff. Um, but it's it's showing when you when you miss some of that continuity yeah, 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 yeah. Um, that, yeah, it's like, oh, that's right. Yeah, he did touch that tree. All right. He did. You know, so I remember those things now. But everything I know about uh, Game of Thrones uh, is that I am bound to be disappointed. And that's and so when I start to see things that are from other shows that disappointed, mm-hmm. um, that's where I'm, I, I could start going. Ah, this could be a problem, and it could be something that disappoints me, but not the not the other fans. Other things could be disappointing, but um. yeah, I would I would expect. I mean that that's kind of been that was kind of the conceit of this podcast was to see if you would find the same things thrilling or problematic that you know that millions of other people have (laughs) and so far you know it's it's kind of hit or miss sometimes you know you you don't have you've zigged where everyone else is zagged okay my favorite episode's coming up steve is that right like it's episode nine of this season oh okay really it's your favorite episode I, I I just keep coming back to it. It just it's really, really really great, and I I almost don't even care that I'm building you up for. It. I feel like it's great. I don't mind telling you it's great, and I don't think that that's going to lessen your enjoyment of it. Wow. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly—it's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. For this bird's eye view, I will include an excerpt of my conversation with philosopher Chad Carmichael. I I just really yearned for there to be a little bit, a glimmer of light somewhere. And it was really hard to find. And I I have to say, I mean, I really think that may be a defect in the book. It's too dark. I think it's too dark. And I think people cope. I think people cope with it. By pretending that people are better than they are actually presenting. You, you're saying that we need to meet Tom Bombadil right after this chapter. (laughs) I'm saying that if uh, if Gandalf were here, he would he would not abide this Mm -hmm. behavior from from all these people. Yeah, Tom Bombadil would walk in. He'd like snatch up the wolf by its haunches and flip him around and tickle his belly and laugh at the darkness. Yeah. And our little travelers would leave refreshed. That's what, that's what <laughs> Chad Carmichael wants. Well, no, I, it's not that. It's not, that's not what I want. <laughs> I, w- I, would, I, like, I love Tom Bombadil. I, I think. So here's another story. You might story be right about that. I think that Martin does provide little glimmers of hope but they're very few and far between but you need them yeah every now and again you need them like you need that little gesture of kindness that Tyrion shows Jon Snow yeah you need that tiny little glimmer of hope that there are humans in this world that are worth caring about yeah and there's not enough of it there's not enough of it in my opinion huh, all right and I would compare it to so I don't want the Tom Bombadil thing you said I, what I I like the the story, um, the novel, The Road by Cormac McCarthy. Okay. Very, very dark story. Yeah. So it's not, d- darkness is not, I'm fine with there being lots of darkness. It's a very dark story. But he uses that darkness so that when he has an opportunity for somebody to be good, it just bursts forth as this bright, just moving occurrence. Huh. And I don't get that in these stories. Yeah, I think you're. I think you're. I think you're wrong. 
I don't think it. I don't think it makes you a bad person. I think you yeah. can be wrong and a good person. So I'm not. Give me one counterexample through these stories. I'm going where... to. I'm going to give it to you now. Oh, good. I think that the relationship between Jon Snow and Sam is super important because Jon is dealing with this dark, cold reality. You know that the lie that's been perpetuated that this you know it's an institution. The Night's Watch is an institution of honor. And, you know, here he is, he's celibate, uh, his whole life has, has been a lie, and now he's going to go up at the wall and live a lie at the wall or whatever. Mm-hmm. And no one really that we've met is the sort of character that we would meet in Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. And then Sam Tarly shows up, and he's like a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. And you need it. It's like a, it's like a, just yeah. a little drop of cool water in an ocean of salts and wind. Well, my first reaction to what you say is, yeah, sure, the, that's a real friendship, and I like it. Well, don't uh, belittle, don't belittle my counterexample. But it, 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 I did, I did not find those parts of the story moving when I read them. But maybe I I, w- I can say this. I will read them again with interest in light of the fact that you hold this out as the brightest spot in the story. Well, I don't know if it's the brightest spot in the story. I well, mean, I th- you said you said it, it, was, your it is. It is an example. I th- I think that Tyrion uh, Tyrion's <laughs> gesture of kindness uh, to the Stark kids is is another example of this. See, these are it's it's like somebody's minimally decent. And that's supposed to like move us. There's those are minimal decency. If when the world is as dark as it is, just one decent human can make a difference. Man, I I just I yearn for somebody to be genuinely good. Yeah, Sam is good. Yeah, you fight me on this point, but Sam is good. (laughs) 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 What about what about Davos? What about Davos, Chad? You know, it's funny. I I always found his his subplots to be just sort of tedious. I yeah, but I feel bad as to far say as that. just a character goes. Yeah, he's. I feel like he's always trying to be to do the right thing. I I don't feel like yeah. he. This is a character that is morally gray. I feel like he's just you mm-hmm. know at every turn he tries to do the right thing. Yeah. Yeah, maybe that's right. He does. I, I can only report that for whatever reason, despite the fact that I think you're right about that. He's he's a much more decent man than than you find anywhere else in the story. Despite that, I didn't find him. Here you are choices. again, belittling Sam. I just I will not abide this, Chad. <laughs> this aggression will not stand. Uh, yeah. Well, we really we need someone to do something genuinely heroic at some point. And I just, I don't know that that happens, but. <laughs> Arya, Arya's done something uh, heroic. Arya's an interesting case because I, I mean, she, I'm sure she's probably one of the most common favorite characters in the story. Uh, and probably this is part of the reason is that, you know, she, she is brave and she does the right thing in a lot of instances. But I feel like it's a little bit drowned by uh, just the pity that we feel for her. You know, she's she's so such a little girl and she's so um, just burdened with the terrible things that have happened. And so it's a little hard to see her in a heroic role because you just you you almost feel like she's not OK. You know, I never I don't see Arya that way at all. I, I feel like she's like punk rock. Huh. She's like I, I, she's like, it doesn't matter. Look. These clothes, it doesn't matter how they're going to get packed. I don't care what Septim Mordain says. <laughs> well, just that throw stuff them is in great. there. I just mean... throw them in the trunk. I don't. Th- your stupid little customs make no difference to me. I have a wolf. Do you understand that? I have a wolf for a pet. Yeah. yeah. I'm. I'm going to go no, kick sh- some ass. I'm going to learn to use this sword. I kind of feel like I don't feel sorry for her. I feel like she's an avatar for every child who feels like. I'm going to live in a life of adventure and I don't care what these old people say. The way that she is consumed with a need for revenge is so sad. It is. And it's date and it's daily in her story. Well, not yet, not yet. At this point in the yeah, story, oh, okay. she's fair, fair acted enough. heroically yeah. and bravely. Yeah. 
and I have resonated with that. She's just she's over in to, up to this point in the story. She's so impotent, right? She's so overcome with with evil. I don't know. I don't know. She's overcome with evil. What are you talking about? I mean, she can't win. She loses over and over again. Oh. She's bullied, and she's. I mean, right. you know, I, she threw the guy's sword in the <laughs> in the river. <laughs> that was. I don't know if that was moving exactly, but it was satisfying. But um, and and she is brave, you know, and she speaks up in that room, and she's not afraid. You know, the bravest I, thing that she did probably was to send her pet away. Yeah, for a little girl to yeah. do that—that's that's impressive. Okay, so uh, we'll end on a high note then, because I agree that that is a movie <laughs> point in the story. I, I would like more of that uh-huh. in the story. Okay. I would like more of that. So, something genuinely moving and inspiring would be good. You're such a pessimist. <laughs> my thanks to Chad, my thanks to Steve Osborne, and of course my thanks to David Peterson. If you have feedback on any of this, you can email to book at baldmove.com. And that is all for this week.